Hello there, welcome to the 10 Minute Recap. Today we're covering the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon, to Isaiah chapter 14. So let's jump right in. The Song of Solomon, a bit of background info here. It's of course an acrostic poem about love, specifically romantic love between a man and a woman, sexual love as well. So the couple in the poem is married. The man calls the woman his bride right around, right around six times. Now, there are a few different interpretations of the book as a whole, and I think the most popular ones, there's four of them in my estimation, are that the book is meant to be, one, an image of Christ in the church, or two, an image of God in Israel, three, it's just a play, which of course then you'd have to answer why it's in there, or four, it's a poem celebrating romantic and sexual love. Now, I tend to think this is a poem celebrating romantic love because there are a lot of sexual references that don't seem to add up, in my estimation anyway, to a Christ in the church or God and Israel analogy without getting pretty weird. Israel is spoken of as a bride to God in the prophets of the Old Testament, and the church is spoken of as the bride of Christ in the New Testament. So don't get me wrong, I understand that, but... The song doesn't seem to give hints that it's meant to be an allegory, and it speaks blatantly about human sexuality quite a bit. Whereas when the Bible speaks of the God-Israel and Christ-Church relationships, it's in a provider, protector, redeemer way rather than in a sexual way or using sexual imagery. Now, in fact, sexual imagery is used by the Old Testament prophets in Israel's case, but it's in the negative sense because her idolatry is compared to adultery and prostitution. Now, I do think that a romantic poem makes a sort of sense to be included in the wisdom literature of the Bible. I mean, think about it. Ecclesiastes has spoken of the meaninglessness and the toil of life in the sinful world. And Proverbs has spoken of the love between a man and a woman being a wonderful mystery. So human romantic relationships as given by God between a man and a woman in covenant with one another is celebrated in the song as something truly wonderful, something unbreakable, something given by God to be enjoyed. So not only is sexual reproduction the only way the human race will survive, but it can also be an amazing blessing. Okay, with that really long-winded introduction now over, let's jump into Song of Songs chapter one. Okay, so there are three speakers here, she, the friends, and he, so the woman, the man, and the friends. Now this chapter introduces a reoccurring theme, a storyline. The lovers are apart and then they find each other. So there's always a lot of the lovers praising each other's physical merits and basking in the sweetness of their love. Chapter two then sees the lovers finally being in each other's presence. Uh, in chapter three, the woman is looking for her man at night. She finds him and brings him home. But the chapter reverts again and the lovers are once again apart and they're longing to be reunited. In chapter four, we have the man describing the woman and her great beauty and worth. He even talks about her neck being adorned with a necklace that looks like rows of shields. Now, maybe this is just because I'm really interested in jewelry, modern and ancient, but you might be interested to know there is a style of necklace from the ancient Near East that I think absolutely looks like a row, rows and rows of shields. So it might be uh, cool to look up for you. Song of Solomon chapter five sees the woman agonizing over the separation from her man. 
The lovers can't stand it. They need to be back together. And there's this really loving description of the man. Chapter six sees the man describing the woman as better than all of the royal ladies. And this chapter is also when the woman starts being referred to as the Shulamite, which is the feminine form of the name Solomon. So maybe this is saying that she's as desirable as Solomon himself, who absolutely would have been seen as quite the catch in his day, right? He's the son of David. He's the third king of Israel. He's wealthy. He's powerful. And he must have been a charismatic kind of guy. Chapter seven contains more physical descriptions of both the man and the woman. And then chapter eight seems to move on to more serious matters. So after connecting their love to childbearing and procreation, the woman says in verse six, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Okay, so seals, signet seals, they're essentially ancient signatures. They represented the authority, the identity of the person they belonged to, and would often even be buried with the person at their death. Now, this is interesting because the lover seems to indicate that together they have formed a new identity. She was his signet seal, a part of him carrying his authority. And the idea is that love united them and it's stronger even than death. Okay, so that closes out the Song of Solomon, and we can move on to the book of the prophet Isaiah, much different genre of literature here. All right, Isaiah chapter one lets us know that Isaiah was alive and prophesying during the reigns of four kings of Judah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, if we remember our history from Kings and Chronicles, this tells us a few things. Okay, Uzziah was an all right king, Jotham was pretty good, but he faced and fought wars. Ahaz was terrible. His reign saw the Assyrian Empire as a major threat, but Ahaz rejected God and he went actively down the road of idolatry. And then his son Hezekiah, who was a good king who followed God, but he lived through a really difficult time, all but losing the entire kingdom. So Isaiah lived and ministered in Judah under those king's reigns. And that's important to remember because there were two countries now, right? Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And Israel would fall to Assyria during Isaiah's lifetime in ministry. In his first chapter, Isaiah compares Israel and Judah shockingly to Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, they were so far gone. They had left God's ways and that meant they would be destroyed uh, if they didn't repent. But this seems to indicate that they were beyond even repentance. We learn that the people were self-deceived. They were still partially following God all along, worshiping other gods too. And this was definitely breaking the covenant relationship that they had with God. Isaiah 2 lets us know that though Israel and Judah had rejected God, that God could still do great things. Listen to verses 2 to 5. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. 
Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah 3 gives us a brutal picture of the coming judgment on Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah. God was going to bring nations in against them to invade and destroy. The righteous in the land are told, though, that they're going to be okay, but there still isn't very many of them. Isaiah 4 talks about the branch of the Lord. Now, this is going to take on a more messianic flavor, so pertaining to the Messiah later on in the book. But here in this chapter, the branch of the Lord refers to the survivors of the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah. Now, the image is likely based off of the olive tree. So when an olive tree was felled with only the stump remaining, shoots would grow up from around the stump. Now, these shoots came up even around healthy trees, and they could be planted on their own to make a whole new tree. So the point was that even though Jerusalem is being felled, it's being cut down, a shoot or branch will grow out of the wreckage and become a beautiful new tree. So there is hope. Now, these survivors of the destruction are connected to the Exodus and wilderness wandering period. Uh, In verse 5, it says this, Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory will be a canopy. So just as God's presence led the Israelites to their destination, God's presence would be with the godly survivors to protect them. Isaiah chapter 5 then records the song of the vineyard. So God makes a vineyard. He plants what he thinks are good grapes, but it turns out at harvest time, these are bad grapes. So he's going to start again. And ultimately, it's a picture of the history of ancient Israel. Isaiah 6 seems to tell the story of Isaiah's commissioning as a prophet. And it happened in the same year that King Uzziah died. So Uzziah had been slowly dying of leprosy while his son Jotham had been ruling as co-regent in Jerusalem. And Isaiah sees this vision of heaven above the temple in Jerusalem. The first message is that judgment is coming to Judah. The people will not repent, though chances have been given over and over. The destruction is going to occur. Isaiah chapter 7 then contains the famous sign of the Emmanuel, God with us, which is, of course, taken by Christians as a messianic prophecy about Jesus. But this is not the only thing going on here. What has happened is that there, in the days of Isaiah, there's an anti-Assyrian coalition coming against Judah. They're likely trying to build their army so that they can stand against the Assyrian military. But anyways, Judah is stuck between desperate nations trying to survive and a conquering Assyrian empire. So Isaiah, knowing this, comes to King Ahaz with a message. Trust God to save you. He will save you. Verse 9 says this, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So ask for a sign that you'll know that I'm telling the truth, Isaiah goes on, but Ahaz won't do it. He had already determined to reach out to the king of Assyria to try to become an Assyrian ally. Isaiah goes ahead, though, and gives a sign anyway. A child would be born, and before he's full grown, Aram and Israel, that coalition coming against Judah, would be destroyed, and Assyria would march on Judah. Now, Long term, this prophecy is used again by Matthew's gospel to refer to the birth and life of Christ. Double prophecies are in line with biblical usage. So this idea of a prophecy being filled in the immediate context in which it was given and then being filled 
full or fulfilled again later on. Isaiah 8 also has a few things going on. So Isaiah and his wife and children were being used to communicate communicate God's message verbally, but also symbolically through their actions, through the naming of their children. We're told that Judah would be devastated by Assyria, that the righteous will not fear anyone except God, and there's a warning against consulting mediums, psychics, and spiritists. Isaiah chapter 9 says that because the people have trusted in people's spirits and things other than God, they've been plunged into darkness. But God isn't going to leave them there. Verse 2 says this, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Isaiah names the land of Zebulun, Naphtali, and Galilee. Okay, so this is where the Assyrian invasion began, but this is also where Jesus did most of his ministry on earth. Change was coming. Verse six is quite famous. It says, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 10 outlines the judgment against Assyria. So God allows Assyria to punish Israel and Judah, but then in turn, he will punish Assyria for their evil. The purpose for God's punishment on Israel and Judah is so that they would put their full trust in God and return to the covenant that they made with him. Isaiah 11 sees the branch prophecy moving beyond survivors and into a very clearly messianic role as the son of Jesse, who of course was the father of King David. So the branch is a righteous king with justice and peace, bringing power. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard with the goat, the calf and the lion, and a little child will lead them. We're told that all people, not just Israel, will be under this branch, under this king. Isaiah 12 contains two songs of praise that people will sing when the Messiah King changes everything. Isaiah 13 contains a prophecy against Babylon. Now the Neo-Babylonian Empire has not become a thing yet during Isaiah's lifetime, but they will grow to be a dominating force, not only taking over Assyria, but eventually Judah and Jerusalem themselves. And finally for today, Isaiah 14. It talks about the restoration of Israel, how God will again establish his people in their lands and they will take up a taunt against the king of Babylon who had destroyed them originally. The chapter also contains prophecies against Assyria and Philistia. All right, guys, that's it for your recap today. Let me know your comments and thoughts down below. And until next time, happy reading and happy studying. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.